0: Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. All right. Good morning, church. How are we doing? All right. Well, my name is Jeremy Edson. I'm one of our elders here at South Lake. So if I've not gotten to meet you yet, uh, you have met me now. So um, this morning, as you came in, uh, it's tradition when I preach that you get a blank piece of paper with notes on it. But I promise you this week, there are actually notes. Uh, I just couldn't get them in before uh, winter storm landed, hit. Uh, there just there was a time crunch there, and I just couldn't get them in. So, uh, but anyways, if you uh, downloaded the app, like Melinda talked about, uh, there's actually sermon notes in the app. Uh, they'll actually be on the screen. You just have to write everything down this morning. So at South Lakes, what we're doing this year is we're actually reading through the entire Bible. Uh, as a church. Uh, and there's no greater time for you to get involved in reading God's word in its entirety than this year because our entire church is going through that. Our community groups, our families, our, our kids are all going through that. And so, what a great time it is. And so, every Sunday when you come to church, you should know exactly what is going to be preached up on stage. And today is no different. And so, today we're going to be in the book of Exodus. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 23. But let me ask you, some questions this morning. Number one, has, have you ever had a situation in which someone did not honor their word? Has somebody ever made a promise to you, but later they went back on their word? Maybe you've made a promise and you didn't keep it. You know, I think as parents, we're probably guilty of this, especially with young children, because I remember, especially when my kids were younger, that they would always ask me to, to go stay the night somewhere, or if somebody could stay the night at our house, or if we could go to a certain place, maybe to eat or go get ice cream. And I would always be like, tomorrow or next week. And then you parents know, because you say the same thing, tomorrow or next week comes, and the kids are like, all right, what about now? And you're like, I don't think tonight or today's a good time. And you're like, but dad, you promised me, you promised me, My wife tells me that I made a promise to her whenever we got married that I would take her to Hawaii on our 20th wedding anniversary. And uh, we hit our 20th wedding anniversary back in June and I have still yet to take her to Hawaii. I don't remember making the promise, but she says that I did. And so I guess that I did. But if you stop and think about it, we make lots of promises or agreements in our lifetime. You know, we sign contracts when we take out loans for a car or for a mortgage payment, and we promised to pay the bank back. We signed memberships and cell phone contracts and all kinds of things, right? We even signed marriage covenants or marriage contracts or marriage licenses. I remember uh, when me and my wife were dating and we were engaged to be married, my wife worked at Mardell's, and and one of the things that, because she was always buying stuff, one of the things that she bought, it was very unique, was this huge picture frame covenant. It's one that we still have uh, up in our room today. And uh, we brought that covenant to our wedding. And, and as most of you know, those of you that have gotten married, the day of a wedding is just kind of chaotic and everything just kind of runs together and you have a plan of everything that you want to do. And one of the plans that we had was to sign that marriage covenant. And I remember we had gone through the ceremony and we had gone through the reception and we were getting ready to leave for the for our honeymoon, and it dawned on us that we haven't signed the covenant. And so I remember me and my wife and the pastor that married us, we rushed back to where the covenant was at, and we signed it. And I don't know how long that it took us to to realize that we had signed in the wrong location on the covenant. And so for the last 20 years, I'm supposed to have loved and submitted or obeyed my wife, and my wife was supposed to love and protect me. Now, I'm standing here today, so I would say that she's probably, you know, done her part of that, but I know that there's many times uh, that I have broken uh, that covenant of not submitting to her. So why is it sometimes that we don't honor our word? You know, why is it that we make promises and then go back on what we said? Because there are consequences when we don't honor our word, isn't there? You know, sometimes breaking our word, it could cost us our family. Sometimes it could cost us our friendships or money could even cost us our integrity or our reputation. And I think that we would all agree here that honesty and integrity are two key parts to any relationship. And if you take out one of those characteristics, then the relationship is broken. And if you were to ask me what honesty and integrity mean, I would, I would sum it up like this, that honesty is telling the truth even when it hurts. And integrity is doing what's right, even when no one is looking. It's saying and doing what's right. And without honesty and integrity, there really can be no real relationship. And that goes for our relationship with God as well. A true relationship must be built on saying the truth and doing what we say. And so today we're going to look at uh, a very special relationship that God began with the children of Israel after they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. It was a continuation of the covenant that God had made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, we just went over that. Joy preached on that just a few weeks ago. And so here we are. We're in the book of Exodus. And this is what we've learned so far in the book of Exodus. We've seen that Israel has become a small nation, but they were made slaves by Pharaoh. We've seen the story in the birth of Moses. We've seen the burning bush experience in which God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. We've seen the 10 plagues happen in which God used to free the children of Israel from slavery. We've seen the institution of the Passover. We've seen the crossing of the Red Sea and how Pharaoh's army uh, was crushed underneath the waters of the Red Sea. Like all these things you've read about if you're reading through our Bible plan this week. And it really feels like that we're moving through Scripture, through the Bible, in a very rapid pace. Anybody else just that's been reading along just feel like we're just going through Scripture at a rapid pace? There's a lot of things going on, a lot of things happening in just such a short amount of time. And so that brings us to Exodus chapter 19 through 23. And we have here over 2 million people wandering through the wilderness, who for every single day of their life, somebody has told them what to do, when they could wake up, when they could go to sleep where they were going to work at, how long they were going to work, when they could take their break, when they could go eat, you know, for every day of your life. Could you just imagine that somebody is telling you exactly what to do? And here we are, we have 2 million plus people who are no longer slaves in Egypt. And so what rules were they to obey? What rules were they to live by? You know, it would be very chaotic if they just came out, of Egypt, and and they just everybody did their own thing, right? I don't think the Israelites would have lasted that long. But in Exodus chapter 19, we see that God brings the children of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, the same place in which he spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And it's been about three months since their, their exodus from Egypt. And he begins giving them his law and his commandments. And he even desires to have a covenant or a special relationship with the children of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 19, we see where Moses prepares the people to meet God. Exodus 20, we read about the Ten Commandments, and I don't know if you were paying attention whenever you read that this week on the Ten Commandments, but the children of Israel actually heard with their own ears God speak the Ten Commandments to them. And then in Exodus chapter 21, 22, and 23, we see laws about slaves, about restitution, about social justice, about the Sabbath, and about festivals. And so here in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, this is where we're going to begin reading this morning. We see the close of a covenant-making ceremony and the beginning of a relationship. And one of the key parts of this covenant would be the importance of keeping your word. God keeping his promise to his people and God's people keeping their obligations to him. And so let's read Exodus chapter 23 we're going to start in verse 20 it says behold i send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that i have prepared pay careful attention to him and obey his voice do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that i say then i will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and to the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days, and I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate, with wild beasts multiplying against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And then Exodus 24, he says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood, and he put it in basins, and half the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I think this passage of Scripture that we just read may be one of the most important passages of Scripture in the entire Old Testament. And we've read through a lot of incredible things and a lot of important things in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, this week we just read about the institution of the Passover and what that means and the foreshadowing of what that means. And that's important, but I think without... God choosing to have a a special relationship with his people here that the Passover doesn't mean as much. If God would have just freed Israel from slavery and they all just scattered and went their own way, like I don't think that, that it means as much. And so I think this is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. And it's a continuation of the covenant with Abraham, but it's a sign to the Israelites that Jehovah God, that the I am that we talked about last week, that he desired a relationship with them. And God was a holy God, and for there to be a relationship, there needed to be a covenant between both parties here. And here we see the close of a covenant-making ceremony. It actually begins in Genesis chapter 19, when God says that the children of Israel would be his treasured possession. They would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it ends with God urging the children of Israel to faithfulness along with the covenant making ceremony itself. And so this morning, I would like us to look at five questions. And if you're taking your notes this morning, this is where your notes come into play. And so the first question that we're going to look at is, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Now, there are lots of fancy terminologies and definitions for covenant, but I'm a very simple guy, and so I like very simple definitions. So I'm going to give you a simple definition this morning of a covenant. And a covenant is simply a relationship. Covenant is simply a relationship. Now, in the Bible, we see many covenants. In fact, I would say that if you've ever read through the entire Bible, that you would agree with me that the Bible is a covenantal book. And we see that it's filled with covenants, and some of those covenants are between equal parties, and we've actually already seen some of those in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 21, we've seen a covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. In chapter 26 of Genesis, we see a covenant between Isaac and Abimelech. And then in Genesis chapter 31, we see a covenant between Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. And so those are covenants between equal parties, but we also see in Scripture covenants between our covenants that are divine covenants, covenants between God and man. And we've actually already seen those covenants in Genesis as well. There are three covenants that we see in Genesis between God and man. We see the covenant with Adam. Now the term covenant is not used, but all the the terms and the curses and the blessings of a covenant, they all are entailed in Genesis chapter two and chapter three. And then in Genesis chapter nine, we see the covenant with Noah in which God promises never again to destroy the earth by means of a flood. And then in Genesis chapter 15, we see the covenant that God makes with Abraham, that he would make him into a great nation, that he would multiply his descendants and make them more numerable than the stars of heaven. And that's the promise that, that we see here, and that's the promise that was passed down to Isaac and to Jacob and now to the Israelites. And so here in chapter 23 and 24, we see God making a covenant with the God with Moses and with the children of Israel, on the foot of Mount Sinai, 400 years after they've been in slavery, and if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, you remember how God promised Abraham. It was kind of like a little side note, as he was telling him and promising him all these things, and how his people would come back, and they would, they would inherit this land. He says, just by the way, I just want to let you know that your people, they're going to be uh, servants in a, in a land that's not theirs for 400 years, and so here we are, and a key note here, something I want you to, to really take note of here, is I want you to understand that it is God who chose the children of Israel. God chose them. You see, nowhere in Scripture do we see where Abraham or where Isaac or where Jacob or where any of the children of Israel were seeking God. Like, it doesn't tell us that. And you would think think that you would have, like, the little guy that would want to make a covenant with the big guy, right? Like, hey, can you protect me? Like, I'll do whatever you want me to do if you'll just do this for me. But no, we see God comes, and he wants to make a covenant with them, and he chose them. Matter of fact, in in Psalms chapter 14, Psalms chapter 53, and Romans chapter 3, they all say the same thing about mankind. They say that there is none who do good, and there's nobody who seek after God. God chooses them, and so look at me, or look with me in chapter uh, 7 of Deuteronomy. It's actually going to be on the screen. We'll read it together here. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, and that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. See, God chooses to make a covenant with the children of Israel simply because He chooses to. It wasn't on on the merits of anything else. It wasn't on the merits because they were the largest nation or, or they just had a lot of good people in it. They just looked good. They were the prettiest. It was just simply because God chose them. So that brings us to our second question. What were the terms of this covenant? What were the terms of this covenant? As in any covenant, there are agreements between both sides. And in Exodus 23, we see the terms of the covenant between the divine, which is God, and the lesser, which is the children of Israel. And in this section of Exodus 23, we see certain promises from God, but at the same time, we see certain requirements that He has that's charged to Israel. And the blessings of those promises were based on the keeping of their word, God keeping His word of promise and the Israelites keeping God's law. And as we read through and as we read through chapter 23, there's really two common phrases that stick out. Number one is the I will statements from God. Take a look at it if you would. Verse 22 says, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Verse 25 says, he will bless your bread and water and I will take away sickness from among you. Verse 26 None would miscarry or be barren. I will fulfill the number of your days. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you, which would drive out the people of the land. Verse 29, I won't drive them out in one year, but little by little in verse 30, I will drive them out from before you. And in verse 31, I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, and I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And I think that we can sum up uh, all of these I will statements here from God into uh, three categories here, and, and that is that God would protect, He would provide, and that He would give to the children of Israel. Remember, they just came out of an entire lifetime of slavery in Egypt. And even though Scripture says that they did have weapons because the Egyptians gave them weapons for whatever reason as they left. Um, you know, they didn't have a trained army. They were slaves their entire life. They didn't have a trained army, and they didn't have a place that they could grow their crops and have food and count on those, that food, you know, sprouting up. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have a place to call home. But God says here that I will, I will protect you. I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. He says he's going to provide for them. He's going to bless their bread and their water. He's going to take away sickness from them. He's going to make sure that they're not barren and they're going to be able to multiply in the land. And then he's going to give them the land and he gives them the area of the land that he was going to give them. And the second thing that we see here uh, in, in chapter 23 is this. We see the you shall statements. And really we see the you shall statements. They really go back to Exodus chapter 20 in the start of the Ten Commandments. But here in Exodus chapter 23, there are really three main instructions here. Uh, verse 21 through 22 says this, says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. The first thing that we see here from the you shall statements is that the blessings of the promise, they come from obedience, the blessings of the promise. They come by obedience. And then in verses 23 and 24 says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. Like, why would God say this? Like, you just go back just a couple of chapters to Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And what was the first commandment? God says, and he starts out in Exodus chapter 20, he says, I'm the Lord, I'm the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment, he says, look, you're not to even make any carved images and bow down and worship them. And why does he tell him that? And it's because God is not a created being. And anything that they would create would not be a fair representation of who God is. And then God goes on and he says, listen, I am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. You see, we live in a day and age in which all religions are equal. People say that all religions are equal and that we should respect all religions How many of you have seen the bumper sticker, the coexist bumper sticker? It's got the little symbols of all the different religions that are out there. And the meaning behind that is like, hey, we're all talking about the same God, and all roads lead to heaven. But listen, that theology does not come from God, because not all religions are equal, and not all roads lead to God. There is only one true God, the I Am, or the Jehovah Nissi, as you read this week, the Lord is my banner. And he says that he's a jealous God and he wants you all to himself and he will not share his glory with anyone else. And then we see in verses 32 and 33, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. How many of you remember when you were little and your parents said, hey, I, I don't want you hanging out with that person, or I don't want you hanging out with this group of people. And why did they tell you that? They told you that because they knew that if you started hanging out with those people, that, that you might start to act like them, that you might start to do some of the things that they did and say some of the things that they did. And you might get into trouble yourself, right? That's exactly what God is saying here with the children of Israel. When I bring you into the land, you are not to make covenants with these people, because they don't serve me. They don't know who I am. And they're going to tempt you to serve and follow after their gods and to to walk in their ways. And I'm a jealous God, and I don't want any of that. I'm not going to share my glory with anybody else. And so they were not to make any covenants. So that brings us to our third question this morning. And that is, how was the covenant put into effect? How was the covenant put into effect? And the first thing that we see is we see that God actually comes down to confirm the covenant. And we see the presence of God all throughout Exodus in the presence of a thick cloud. And the Israelites, they were to consecrate themselves. In Exodus 19, God tells Moses, you need to consecrate the people because in three days I'm coming. And so Moses tells the people, hey, you got to wash your clothes and you got to stay away from your women because God's coming down. And they're getting ready to meet a holy God. This is why they had to do this. But I think we see something else here in chapter 24, verses one and two. This is what we see. It says, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. And so what we see here is that any time that, God's presence is somewhere, is that there needs to be worship. Like we need to worship God. And I think there's a picture here that we see also of something that we're getting ready to read starting tomorrow in Exodus chapter 25, and that's a picture of the tabernacle. Because there was a distinction here between the Israelites, between the common people, between the priest, and between Moses. You see the common people in in Exodus chapter 19, God says, look, they can come to the base of the mountain, but that's it. They can't go any further. If they touch the mountain, they're going to die because God's presence was there. And then they see Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders, they get to go up just a little bit further on the mountain. And then Moses, he gets to go all the way to the top of the mountain. And I think this is a picture of the tabernacle that we see with with the priest and how we have the high priest is the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice once a year. We're We're going to read about that coming up in the next week or two. And so God was coming down to dwell in the midst of his people. And I think really that, that this shows us our need of a mediator with, with Moses being the only one that could go into God's presence here. We need a mediator. And in Exodus 24, 3-8, through eight, God, he or Moses speaks to the children of Israel, the terms of the covenant. He says in verse 3, he says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then if you skip down in verse 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. When we sign contracts you know, I don't know if we always read through even to the, the very bottom line and look at the fine print and see what's in those. Sometimes there's some things in the fine print that that may surprise us or, you know, catch us off guard. There may be some kind of big balloon payment at the end of our loan, or there may be, you know, something that we have to do at the end of that. Or we may be tied down to a certain year uh, or number of months in, in our contracts that we sign. But here... The children of Israel, they had no surprises in what they were doing. They knew exactly what this covenant entailed. Moses told it to them. They actually heard it from God, a lot of it. And then Moses writes it down in a book and he speaks it to them. And both times, both times they confirm the covenant and they say, listen, we will be obedient. We'll do everything that God tells us. And then we see starting in Exodus 24, verse 4, where the covenant is sealed in blood. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And the 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and he put it in basins, and half the blood he threw it against the altar Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses seals the covenant by blood. And in Scripture, in all of the divine covenants that we see between God and man, blood is always shed Look with me at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It should be on the screen. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And you see a sacrifice was made here for the forgiveness of their sins. And while part of the blood was used for atonement of their sins, the other part of the blood was used to seal the covenant. And so now we know what a covenant is. We know what the terms of the covenant are. We know how it was put into effect. So it brings us to our fourth question, which is, what is the ultimate goal of this covenant? What's the ultimate goal of being in this covenant with God? Look with me in Exodus 24, verse 9. This is after they sealed the deal here. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of people of Israel, and they beheld God and ate and drank. And then in verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so we see after they sealed the deal here with blood, that there's actually a meal that takes place. and, And Moses and Aaron and Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, they get to go up and they have a meal. And I'm not for sure exactly what they saw. Scripture just gives us just a a little glimpse of what they saw. And it shows that they see maybe the feet of God and the pavement in which God stood. And, And they didn't, God allowed them to see that. He didn't kill them for seeing that. And then Moses gets to go a little bit further up the mountain into the presence of God, into His glory. And so I think that's the ultimate goal of being in this covenant with God. And that's to be in the presence of God and to see his glory. That's the ultimate goal here is to have a full relationship with God. You know, one of the greatest things about marriage is getting to live with your spouse. You know, me and my wife, we dated for three and a half years before we got married. You know, we did a lot of things I took her on a lot of dates. We went and did a lot of activities. We ate a lot of meals together, did a lot of things together. But at the end of the day, I had to go back home. For three and a half years, I had to go back home. And I look forward to the day when we got married, because when we got married, I didn't have to go home anymore. When I went to bed, my wife was there. When I woke up, my wife was there. We got to have a family together. We got to go on vacations together. We got to do life together. And is that not the goal of the relationship that we have with God, is, is that of a marriage? One where we get to live every single day of our life with our Creator, our Heavenly Father, and the One who freed us from the bondage of sin? There's no greater joy to be in the presence of the Father and to experience and to see His glory. So that brings us to our final question this morning. And maybe it's the most important question. And that is, what happens if Israel doesn't keep the covenant? Mm. What happens if they don't keep the covenant? Now, we don't see the full extent here in Exodus of the blessings and the curses. We'll see that later on in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But we do know that the blessings of the promise, that they come from being obedient, and so they must remain obedient. And in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 7, when, when Moses ratifies the covenant with the children of Israel and he tells them everything that God has said and they say, we're going to be obedient. And when he writes it in the book and he reads it again and they say, we will be obedient. Do you think they really meant it? It's a good question. I think that they were sincere probably in what They said, I mean, I think they had every intention of following God's commandments. I think that they were truly sincere in the words that they said. But what I don't think they understood was I don't think they understood the greatness of God and His holiness. And I don't think that they understood the depravity of man and the deepness of their own sins. They made a promise sincerely, but it was incompetent. Like, Jeremy, what does that mean? Let me take you 40 years later to the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we see, and if you remember the hand motions, you got Joshua, he divides, conquers, and then he divides up the 12 tribes. And at the end of the book of Joshua, this is what Joshua says. He says, you need to choose this day whom you're going to serve. Are you going to serve God and the God that freed you from Egypt, who has provided for you, who has protected you, who has given you this land? Or are you going to serve the gods of the people that were in this land? He says, but as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And the people, they respond back the exact same way that they did in Exodus chapter 23 and 24. They're like, we'll be obedient. Everything that God says, we're going to be obedient. And so I want to take a look this morning at what Joshua told them. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 19 But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And I find that that's interesting that he says that. And where did he get that from? Because Joshua was only two men that were alive at the beginning of the first covenant. So let's go back and let's read Exodus chapter 23. In verse 20, it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. God was sending an angel before them, one which had God's name. We believe that this is Jesus pre-incarnate. And you needed to listen and you needed to obey his voice because he would not pardon your sin. And Joshua tells the second generation that actually gets to go in and inherit the promised land, the exact same thing here. And you see in this covenant with Israel, there is really no forgiveness of sin and rebellion. There's no forgiveness of sin and rebellion. And everybody in Exodus chapter 24 They failed in keeping the covenant. Moses failed when he strikes the rock twice in Numbers chapter 20. Aaron failed a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 32. Less than 40 days before Moses even comes down from the mountain, Moses or Aaron builds up and makes this golden calf, and the people bow down and worship. Nadab and Abihu. The Levitical priests, they fail in Leviticus chapter 10 when they offer an unauthorized offering to God. And so God consumes them with fire. The elders and all the people, they fail. They worship this golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. And then later in Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14, we see when they were getting ready to go in and possess the promised land, they had sent the spies into the promised land. And word came back that these guys were big and we can't take them. The only people that said we could take them were Joshua and Caleb. And and, and the rest of the people, they're like, we don't trust God. Let's just stay where we're at in the wilderness. Everybody in this story failed to keep their promise to God and the terms of the covenant. And if you and I were in this same situation, if we were here, the outcome would be no different, would it? It would be no different because we're not able to fully obey God and satisfy His justice. And that's a really big problem, because in this covenant, rebellion would not be forgiven, yet the people were rebellious people. It's a covenant in in which the blood of animals only symbolically cleansed them, but the people, they needed a real cleaning. It's a covenant that would not save them eternally, and it won't save us eternally. And it wasn't because the covenant was broken. It's because people are broken. It's because people are broken. And you see, God's law was never intended to save Israel from their sins. It never was. It was to point them to their need of a Savior. You see, God is holy and God is perfect. And we are not. And even if we wanted to follow God's law perfectly, we can't. Because in the words of Joshua, we're not able to. You see, we're sinners not because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way because of the fall in the garden. And we need a new covenant. We need a new mediator. We need a Savior. That's what we need. We need a Savior. And the outcome here, it it did not surprise God. In fact, this covenant, the Passover, everything else that we read in the Old Testament, Like everything points towards the new covenant, and it points towards Jesus. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David and promises him that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God says he's going to make a new covenant. And it's not going to be like the old covenant in which the people broke. And he was going to write his law on the tablets of their heart, not on tablets of stone. And that he would make them his people and he would be their God. And get this, if you go back and you read Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, in this covenant, he would forgive them of their sins and he would remember their sins no more. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and 20, the new covenant is established when Jesus, before he dies on the cross, he eats a meal with his his disciples And he says, look, you need to take and you need to eat this bread because it represents my body, which is broken for you. And you need to drink this cup because it represents the blood that is poured out for you. And a little while later, Jesus dies on the cross and he fulfills the law. He fulfills the prophets. He fulfills the commandments, all the promises. And he pays the price once and for all for our sins. I wish we had time this morning that we could go into more depth of just the differences between the different covenants. And if you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to write the book of Hebrews down and read this week on top of what you're normally reading. Read Hebrews chapter eight and Hebrews chapter nine because they compare the old and the new covenant. And in Hebrews chapter eight, it says that if the first covenant would have been faultless, then there would have never been a need for the new covenant. Like if the first covenant would have saved them eternally, if the blood of animals would have saved them eternally, there would have been no need for Jesus to come on the scene. And in Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about how Jesus is the new mediator of the new covenant and how His blood secures our eternal redemption. The blood of Jesus, it secures our eternal redemption. You see, everything points towards Jesus, everything. We are a broken people and we need a Savior. And God, He knew this before the foundation of the world. Even before He created the world, He knew that you and I were going to sin, and he he had a plan from the very beginning, and we see that, and we've seen that already. The question is this morning, do you trust that plan? Do you trust that plan in the finished work of Jesus on the cross? You know here in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response, and we always use this phrase on stage like, "I want you to wrestle with god and Maybe for a long time, you didn't even know what that meant until just a couple of weeks ago when Joey was preaching through Genesis and talked about Jacob wrestling with God. But this morning, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. I'm going to ask you to wrestle with God this morning. You know, some of you, you need a name change, just like Jacob. Some of you are trying to do things on your own. You're trying to earn salvation on your own. You're like the Israelites who say, hey, we're going to be obedient. But in reality, you can't be obedient. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, each and every one of us. And so some of you this morning, you need to accept the terms of the new covenant, not the old. And you need to trust in the finished work of Jesus and in his blood and his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says that if you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and if you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like, that's the term of the new covenant. Jesus sealed that covenant with his blood. The question is, do you believe? Do you trust in that new covenant? Some of you are here this morning and you're like, hey, Jeremy, I, I I believe in that covenant. I've been saved for quite a long time. And so my question to you this morning is, what area of your life do you struggle with obedience? What area do you struggle with obedience? You know, I've listed a couple of things here. Some of us may struggle with the Being obedient in baptism, like we've trusted in Jesus, but we've never followed through in believer's baptism and showed that public display of of what we believe. Some of you, and we don't talk about this a lot, may struggle with just the call to ministry. Maybe God's been tugging on your heart. We still need preachers and we still need youth ministers and children's ministers and worship ministers and and missionaries to go out and spread God's word. And, And maybe God's been tugging on your heart for quite a long time, the call to ministry. Maybe some of you need to be obedient to the call of ministry. Maybe it's just a particular sin in your life that you struggle with. You know, I know each and every day I struggle. There are certain things that I just struggle with and I have to ask God for help on those things. What do you struggle with being obedient? Honesty and integrity, saying and doing what's right, it's the key to any relationship, including our relationship with our Heavenly Father. On this side of eternity, we'll never be sinless. But as we grow in our relationship with the Father, we should sin less. Our lives should slowly start to look more and more like His. And so whatever you need to wrestle with this morning, I pray that you do that this morning. If you want to pray or talk with somebody, I'll be down here up front. But I ask this morning that, that you would just meditate and that you would wrestle with God this morning. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life.